And Todd, I just saw your message in the Skype thing. I'm sorry for ruining your joke. <sighs> I tried so hard. I can't be mad, though, because it was ultimately about belittling your country. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> hey, we belittle ourselves enough as it is. We don't need you big shot Americans coming over here and belittling us even more. We feel plenty little as it is. Thank you very much. We sort of infantilize your your culture. <laughs> okay. Excuse me, I gotta go dance a jig and eat a potato. <laughs> yeah, do you feel we've perpetrated a cultural genocide on you with St. Patrick's Day and the like? <laughs> no, I don't really think about things like that. <laughs> I think about wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about Animal Hamaguchi a lot today. My name is Justin Shapiro Show. If you are a family member of mine or somebody that I went to high school with, the very fact that you've gotten this far already is on a very tenuous ground. But it need not go any further. It can stop right now and we can leave it at this and just let the rest remain out there, uh, unspoken and unknown. But that's up to you. But I strongly, strongly urge you, don't listen to this. Wouldn't that be weird if you did? Isn't this already weird that you made it to this? Anyway, so to go into the part you don't want to hear anything about, this is continuation of a cliffhanger. This is the episode uh, called, I think, Jumping Bomb Angles Part 2. Part 1 was the purple jumping bomb angle, and so this would be the red one. I think those are the pants they wore. I'm pretty sure they refer to as number one and number two. <laughs> that was their politically correct titles. <laughs> All right. So we please welcome jumping bomb angle number two. <laughs> it's it, it's wrong. It's wrong to refer to women by color. So I think referring to them by number is a more sensitive approach. <laughs> that's 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 at least what Vince McMahon thought. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome, then, my guest at that time and this time uh, to say all four of their names in alphabetic order. That would be Alan Cunahan, Martin Todd. And uh, thank you both so much for being here. Alan definitely got the best of that. I guess that's right, yeah. Good old AC. What's your middle name, Alan? Steven. And then I took as my confirmation name when I was 12, I took the name Robert. Because my favorite soccer player 
was Robert Lee of Newcastle United. There's an interesting Alan fact for people out there. Who's your favorite soccer player now? Uh, Robert Lee of uh, Newcastle United when I go back and watch my old tapes. <laughs> oh, well, imagine doing that kind of retrospective thing for a hobby and delving back into former things and talking about it. What a waste of time. Sad. So, if you listened to uh, the last show we all did, you'll know that I think it was established through a manipulation of legal contracts, very much like the Marvel Spider-Man Sony copyright situation. I um, was given the responsibility of hosting the shows that I did on Alan's bandwidth with Todd, and now it's on this bandwidth, thecubsfan.com. And we also, one of the things that I love doing with you two, my great friends, was also talking about the Wrestling Observers Hall of Fame. And if the listeners are very good and eat all of their vegetables and do their chores, maybe, just maybe, after we do the jumps, we will talk also the Hall of Fame show because... Um, so after they eat their vegetables, that would be like a dessert kind of a thing? <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. You're going to have your moment. I'm going to have my cake and eat it and my moment and also eat it. I'm going to forcing my hand, but I have no reservations dessert uh, about doing this. I wanted to make it right. If I can set the stage of what we're going to address right now, uh, I think this was a clip from our last recording that I had running just before we started talking like the real show. And it was only seconds before then, and it was caught in the pyramids of history of sound files. And uh, that's this is just all you need to know for setup. That was it. We were talking, and then this happened. I guess we'll give that as a nice dessert to people who listen to this for the first time because Todd's a draw and then endured all of it somehow. <laughs> Is a dessert called a dessert because it's like when you're deserting the meal? No, Alan. Almost certainly not. <laughs> no? Who's to say? I never thought about that before. But just when you said it there, I was like, dessert. Dessert. Huh. Uh, I'm going to talk to some kind of dictionary Waiter? writer. Oh. <laughs> Would you like to see a dessert menu? <laughs> wow. Did you guys like hearing that again? I sure did. Hearing that humiliation, that chastising, that bullying that I was forced to endure. But I got over it. Well, even though I came on so confidently, and I mean, if someone else had said it, maybe I would have taken their idea at face value. But this is Alan S. Cunahan we're talking about. <laughs> It's reasonable. Uh, for the record, then, I did, because of course all my shows are fact-checked, um, in whatever goes through the um, uh, recording, just we run it through a system, and then it's it's the same way they check for plagiarism in papers now, and then it just red flags anything that That's comes a up. requirement, isn't it, for ESPN sponsorship? Yeah, that's right. That's right. The ombudsman over there has forced us to do it. Uh, so then, boom, we get a hit right away, and it wasn't even before the show started. It says, consult the online etymology dictionary, the genesis of words. It's pretty much the Bible of dictionaries. 
And if we look at the word dessert, that is, of course, a noun. And in the mid-16th century, the concept of dessert in French, cuisine, comes from the French terms for clearing the table or unserve or remove or undo or dessert. And Alan... I just need to clear the air and and give you this moment of glory. It's I think it's been like four months now that I've sat with this, and it's bothered me, though, so much until I could finally tell the public that I have erred grievously. And I just want to know, will you accept my apology? Just safe in the knowledge that you would eventually do right by me, I, I certainly do not uh, um, hold this against you, and um, I'm glad you've... You've uh, lived up to my ex- expectations as an honorable man, and uh, I accept your apology. I accept your um, praise, and <laughs> I think we can put this behind us and um, use it as we go forward as a tool to remember that I am at least one time out of a hundred going to be correct when it comes to a matter of language. You surely were. You couldn't have been more correct, and it's not even... Like there was a debate. You pulled the fact out of thin air and added it to the conversation. Out of my ass, actually, to be more specific. Todd on the clip with the subtle pocket veto. We don't know (laughs) whose side he lined up on, and we won't make him declare. (laughs) Yes, and I certainly haven't admitted to anything before before we started on the air. (laughs) I know, legally, you certainly have not learned a bunch of Latin prefixes and suffixes. It meant you, too, should have been able to somehow figure that out and not let Alan get his name and reputation dragged through the mud. But uh, what can I tell you? I'm sorry, and I'm glad that we've settled it. And if it is a show of my error and uh, wanting to make it up to you because people's podcast cues get so backed up, we try to thematically set our shows in the future. This is our Thanksgiving show. Uh, pilgrims and buckles hats and drawing turkeys on your hands and all that so for dessert alan i would like to give you this piece of delicious pumpkin pie that you were right and you earned all along so here you go and here is a fork and you can eat it throughout the show i've never actually had pumpkin pie so i accept this justin oh. and I'm, I'm looking forward to it and I, it's not really a thing over here in ireland what but it's not having thanksgiving and stuff but uh I don't know. I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to see it become a thing. So, uh, I think it should be a, a Halloween thing over here. Would be. Would be good. Is it a Halloween thing in America too, or is it just Thanksgiving? For Halloween, we only use pumpkins for the act of frightening. <laughs> and then is it the leftover pumpkins from the act of frightening that you just used to make the pumpkin pie a couple of weeks That's later? Right. The pumpkin that you scoop out to make twisted demonic faces and goes into just a little aluminum circle and it gets heated up in an oven for pumpkin pie. Is that traditionally how it would go? Would it would would it last the what three weeks, four weeks? That's right. No, he, yeah. he, he he's being entirely facetious. <laughs> I know because I, Todd, I just recently learned that a sweet potato can last in the fridge for three months, and that's also orange. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, before we get before we get started, I got I got a question for Justin. <laughs> this um, is this says like something that people are going to be able to check and then see that I am right, and you'll be having to do another <laughs> apology on the next show. That's right. We're going to be right here in the same, same place. Please go proceed. <laughs> I don't sir. recall anyone disagreeing. So, Justin, you 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 are you are from Pittsburgh, as I recall, correct? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, USA. So true. So proud. Am I correct in assuming that you've been to your fair share of sporting events here in America over the years? Oh, yeah. You name them, I may or may not have been to some of them. So I'm wondering, in your all your years of, of going to, to sporting events here in, in, in the United States, have you ever witnessed someone urinating in a sink in the public uh, restrooms? Um, Are you kidding me? That is what Amo was talking about as far I don't know, was it on the air or was it before the show that I was telling you about Amo having great stories from um, the UFC? That was one of them. People urinating in the sink during the show. I, I mean, that was just a coincidence. I, I was just thinking to myself, that would That's be a amazing. very, a very undignified thing to do. But Justin, do you answer the question? Have you ever seen that? I was going to offer to you that I've seen it many times in Three Rivers Stadium <laughs> and never in Heinz Field, which I think may have something to do with like concourse design and like traffic flow of the populace. But are you telling me maybe it is a more recent phenomenon? Well, I, I had actually never seen it, which I, I thought reflected well on, on on our country. But perhaps ah. uh, Pittsburgh is a, is is an outlier. Wow. Well, yeah, I I didn't see. I just saw the heavy implication based on body placement and sink placement as to what was happening <laughs> in very crowded bathrooms. And this would have been in the 90s before germs were considered bad. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know if this is specific to Pittsburgh, but you want to put me on the spot here on the Justin Shapiro show? I've seen it. Yeah. What, did I do it? No. I would never. But it happened. What about RFK Stadium, though? No one's peeing in sinks over there? No, no. Uh, to, to be honest, I, I was hoping for the answer of no, but unfortunately, oh. what can you do? <laughs> so sorry not to reward your faith in uh, not peeing in sinks. <laughs> do you feel more like the ownership of the Washington Redskins just pees directly all over the fan base? Oh, come on now. They're coming off a big win. Things are going well. <laughs> We've got we've got faith in our team and our ownership and our coach and uh, all the injured players. Wonderful. Well, you know what I don't recommend Robert Griffin the three to do with his wonky knee injuries is any direct jumping in the uh, air. I was just about to make a wide receivers jumping to help. You beat me to it. Go ahead. If you do it, and survival of the fittest will let your transition live on in the editing process. Give no, it a shot. No, no, no. I'm. You got in there. You're you're the pro. You're the host. You got in there with a smooth transition, which I ruined. But um, yeah, I'll respect it. Where we left off in terms of wrestlers leaving one place and occurring in another one, I think, was with the new, new, new world order. A series of weeks in May, nineteen and ninety-six. Um, so uh, yeah, as far as memorable things go, Scott Hall walking out when the two. Uh, bad wrestling men were wrestling and then just talking was a very memorable thing. I was like, what? What about you, Todd? By the way, can you guys remember who the two people wrestling were? I can remember one of them, but I can't remember who the other one was. I only remember, um, oh God, I forget his name. He's one half of the Beverly Brothers. Yeah, Mike Enos. Mike That's Enos. one I remember too. 
I don't know who the other guy was. Yeah, I don't remember either. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, there's not there's not a lot to talk about in the sense that it's so well covered. But yeah, I mean, that was uh, that was one of the most successful of all because you had the person popping up on the other screen and uh, treated as an immediate big deal and a big angle um, coming out of nowhere. I mean, that's sort of the template for uh, guys jumping from one promotion to the other, even though it was framed as sort of the invasion. So it was framed as not being uh, one guy jumping from the other side, but rather, you know, sort of an invasion from one side of a guy that's still with that side, but joining the other side, um, which I guess is sort of a different dimension to that, but uh, it's still sort of a, a similar vibe. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the most uh, successful one of, uh, of them all, probably, as far as... Uh, people uh, moving from one side to the other and just sort of playing it very cleverly to make the person more successful. Because I, I remember when, when Nash and Hall left WBF, uh, my thought, and I think probably their thought as well, was that they were going to make a lot more money, um, but they weren't going to be used as well. You know, so they, you know, sort of be guys that would be in the card, but, you know, Hogan and, and Savage and those guys would still dominate things and uh, be sort of the focal point of the promotion. And instead... Uh, well, I mean, I guess, I guess Hogan still was a focal point, but they were, you know, I think more successful in that run in WCW as far as sort of their, uh, how important they were to the overall picture than they were in the WWF. Yeah. The idea that they would come in and nearly literally beat up the entire roster at the same time with baseball bats was not necessarily like what they signed up for, what was anticipated, especially when you had like the worst drawing WWF champion of all time and, a four-time Intercontinental Champion, uh, were the ones who were jumping. You know, Vince has his expected hang-ups of not wanting to uh, make his side look weak, but WCW more or less said, like, yeah, come in and and, uh, just hit us very hard constantly with bats, (laughs) and we'll all be so scared of you all the time. Um, And compared to, to what you said, Todd, of like a diamond stud type guy and a a Kevin Nash, Vinny Vegas type guy just showing up and maybe working with uh, Sting or whatever. You mentioned Vinny Vegas there, by the way. Reminds me, I was watching on the network the other day, uh, an old Clash of the Champions. Um, I'm trying to pull it up as I as I uh, as I talk here, but it was it was great. It was the it was the one where they did a boxing match between Scotty Flamingo and Johnny B. Bad, and they had a promo backstage with. Uh, Scotty Flamingo, who's better known as Raven, uh, Vinny Vegas, better known as Kevin Nash, and Diamond Dallas Page. And Vinny Vegas <laughs> cuts the entire promo in his absolutely awful Vinny Vegas. Um, <laughs> he loses track of what he's saying in the middle and has to basically apologize for for not being able to speak properly and then gets back to this terrible promo and this terrible angle as like a fake Don King impersonator is like supposedly uh, wrapping the, the, the gloves or wrapping the, the, the hands of, uh, of Scotty Flamingo. It was absolutely tremendous. I, I highly recommend people check out that, uh, that little, uh, the little backstage promo. Um, it would have been Clash of the Champions, I think 20 or 21. If I, if I play a little bit now, let me know if you can hear it. Um, and you may not be able to hear it. So just let me know if you can't hear it. Um, people can listen in here. Um, hopefully. Okay, thanks very much, Jim. Yes, we are in Scotty Flamingo's locker room. You see he has certainly his uh, entourage with him, including a man who knows a lot about boxing, a lot about the odds, Vinny Vegas. You know, Tony, with all this hype and hysteria right now, I know I'm standing in Macon, Georgia, but it feels like 
Fight Night Vegas to the Finn Man. You know, I just got off the phone, and they're telling me the odds are 75 to 1. 75 to 1, my man eats a canvas. Ludicrous. <laughs> ain't gonna happen. The boys in Vegas put up too much time and too much money for my boy to lose. They're in here from the sand. They're in here from the... They're in here from the uh, Caesar Palace. They're in here from everywhere. I'm sorry, I'm very excited. The man has got everything going for him. You know, they say Bobbick had it. You know, they say Jerry Cooney had it. You know, they say Tommy Morrison's got it. This kid's kid's got it all. He's got the jaw of Shavala. He's got the heart of LaMotta. Look who's kneeling down next to him. Maybe you've seen this promoter before. He's a personal friend of ours, eh? And he ain't here wishing him well. No, he's talking pay-per-view. Riddick Bowe? Hey, I don't know. Tonight, here in Macon, hey, my man might be outgunned. He might be outboxed. But the Vegas connection, Scotty Flamingo, never outboxed. We're ready to go in three rounds of boxing. Let's go to the ring. Well, All right. Sorry, Justin. Sorry. Somebody, somebody get Ryan Ward of NXT on the phone and let's pitch this whole thing with Enzo and Big Cass because it needs to be on NXT TV <laughs> recreated as soon as possible. For word, that was it. Because so Kevin Nash, a Michiganian, uh, is doing what I guess that would be like a Joyzy accent, like a wise guy, eh? I thought it was like an Italian stereotype. Right. Someone with the numbers and things of that nature. Pretty much the voice Taz does on a regular basis. <laughs> hey, Joey Styles. That was incredible. It, quite frankly, reminded me a lot of a Lana promo, where she's sort of got the cadence and she generally knows what vowels and how to pronounce them, but she misses them sometimes. <laughs> wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's Vinny Vegas for you. <laughs> and take over the whole company. He was right. Actually, all three of those guys then to varying levels of success, generally, like, leached off of each other. Uh, Flamingo leached off Paige, and Paige leached off of uh, his old relationship with Nash and Hall and, and Eric, and they all were like, let's be a few of the successful people in WCW. Hey, Justin, uh, I don't want to tell you how to host your own show, but just a, a, a tip-off. You got a pretty smooth transition to Johnny B. Bad, Wild Man Mark Marrow, if you want to take it. Hmm. Talking jumps, talking 1996, the year in professional wrestling. A lot of people going in one direction from New York to Atlanta. WWE F at the time. You know those bandas screwing everything up. Want to uh, stem the bleeding and put a huge bid in for a reigning television champion of Turner Broadcasting. His name is John B. Bad. His true Christian name, a Jew for Jesus, I think. He's an attested one was Mark Marrow and his wife. And I think he debuted at WrestleMania 12, right? He sure did backstage. Uh, he was being interviewed. He noticed disapproval of Triple H's treatment of, uh, of women. Um, was it Sable that was Triple H's um, uh, second on that WrestleMania, or was that a, a future TV? I think it was Sable. And Very they... specifically was her, yeah. And he was so mad. Because he lost to the Ultimate Warrior, his eventual best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, Mero, I was all in on Mero. I was WF kid. Like the WCW stuff that was happening over there at the NWO wasn't really on my radar. So um, this was a jump that, that uh, meant a lot to me. And as well, it was another guy like Steve Austin, like Goldust, 
who was around in the the early 90s WCW, which we did get on TV over here. So it was a familiar face in Johnny B. Bad, but he was uh, he was putting aside pretty, and he was all serious. Wild man Mark Marrow, and uh, I was he had his wild thing finisher. He had that cool gear. He was being pimped up big time or propped up big time by Vince McMahon on commentary. I was I was all aboard the Mark Marrow train. I thought this guy was gonna shoot straight to the top of the World Wrestling Federation. Todd, did you believe in a Meritocracy? I thought he was going to do well, too. I mean, I, I feel bad for Mero because amongst guys that aren't, like, completely terrible, like, he seems like he has the lowest reputation of anyone in the business. Like, whenever yeah. wrestlers bring up Mark Mero, they just bury the guy. And I feel like he was fine. Like, I, I don't know why people hated him so much. I feel like, like he holds up really well on rewatch. Like, um, whenever me and my, my buddy watch old tapes or whatever, just randomly, we'll call over and we'll we'll pick off something on the network or before the network we we have this like he still has his vcr set up so and i still have like a gigantic uh stack of old tapes and i'll pull out like wrestling number 111 and um uh yeah there'll be a random mark marrow match on there and um yeah mark marrow holds up this and something that never gets talked about is his heel run with Jacqueline versus Sable. That was some entertaining stuff for like, for like all the like Russo, um, Russo booked uh, soap opera kind of late nineties WF stuff that you go back and watch now. And it's really cringy and doesn't hold up the Mark Merrow Sable feud actually quite entertaining on rewatch. And that was that was one of your classic archetypal wrestling storylines of the woman that wants to take off her clothes <laughs> and the man that doesn't want her to. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he he didn't want it to happen, and she really wanted to entertain the WWF universe. <laughs> she just wanted to take off her clothes. What was his problem? Uh huh. But she beat him with the painted hands loophole. She was like, "You didn't say I couldn't not be wearing these hands." Well, that was more to stick it to Vince. At that point, Mero was against her. Mero was with Jacqueline. Mero was all for, uh, it was like, I guess it was like a bikini contest between Sable and Jacqueline. Mm -hmm. And Mero was all in Jacqueline's corner at that point, which uh, that featured, I don't know if you guys listened to the review away a few months ago, uh, documenting that show. Uh, they played a bunch of clips of the trash talk between Sable and Jacqueline, and uh, it makes Christy Hemi's uh, um, sea guzzling uh, gutter s sea guzzling gutter s uh, comments seem quite tame by comparison. What was left to be said to Jacqueline though? After oh no, that was Nancy Sullivan. Excuse me. Of course. The- the diva diss I cite the most on audio podcasts is when Deborah said that when God was handing out faces, the late Nancy Benoit thought he was asking for cases and said, I'll take a leather one, please. <laughs> I've said it before. Every opportunity I get, I gotta say it. WCW Deborah McMichael, the best <laughs> fucking character in the history of pro wrestling 
those horsemen and entourage promos that would randomly happen with Gene Oakland, Gene Oakland in the aisle way during all the NWO stuff that just kind of existed in their own universe where Flair and all the lads were just, I don't know, I don't know if they were drunk already or what was going on, but Deborah would just go out and take the microphone <laughs> and start just cutting sass on everyone. And Flair would just like clap along and a big smile on his face. Just tremendous. I want to go back and watch some 97 Nitros right now after thinking about that. Now, you teed up me talking about the big Deborah jump again, Alan. It's like you're feeding me to be a big co-host. But I will say <laughs> one other thing about Marrow is the, the weirdness of, you know, talking about these big jumps back and forth. And it's the the publicized ones WWF made, like Marrow, who is a, a big money free agent acquisition. <laughs> Happen at the same time that they just kind of, as you did with Gary Barnard, claimed off waivers, a Steve Austin and a Mick Foley at the same time. So the guys who would turn around the company, they more moneyballed their way to the top, being like, oh, if we can get these productive innings out of uh, a good hand, a damn mechanic like Steve Austin. Uh, but then he'll really be there to support the wild man, Mark Merrow, the next great star. Who else? Was, so I guess Dustin Rhodes was also a fiery who went in that direction. And then Farouk, as far as I remember, hadn't been in WCW for a while, but he was, in a sense, a WCW guy. Yeah, it was a few years. He was, he'd been, out, he'd been mostly out of the business. Because last time he'd been in WCW was 94, and then he showed up in 96 in WF. Actually, I see on this Clash 21 that Ron Simmons and Too Cold Scorpio were a team. Yeah, that was who, his debut, Too Cold. They said one day... We're going to be new sensations in the WWF in 1996. Speaking of all in, I was all in at Too Cold when he debuted in WCW. He had some cool vignettes, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. I Actually, we were just watching because it was on the same thing as here. Like, there's the great music videos where Too Cold Scorpio is, he sees these kids on the playground. And he's like, why aren't you in school? And they're like, eh, we're not going to school. We're playing basketball. He's like, no, you got to go to school. And so they play his music. You know, that everybody here comes to school. Here comes Too Cold Scorpio. <laughs> yes. And so then they, 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 came, they arrived in a limo, right? This long limo. But rather than driving the kids to, to school in this limo <laughs> they all like dance to school so no, going, like, no really they don't slowly. dance they don't dance todd they step <laughs> yes mm. they all step to school so they're going like uh, they, they probably will arrive this school at about like 7 30 p.m at the rate they're going at but that's that's the entirety <laughs> of the video is the I kids very I... slowly stepping to school i believe the interaction was what mouthy child said <laughs> Uh, I don't want to walk to school. And Scorpio said, well, we don't got to walk to school. We're going to step to school. And then they all start stepping. I can't even verify. Maybe that school wasn't over and that vignette took place in the afternoon. And they were just like, this is our recreational like time. Saturday and they just <laughs> right. didn't want to offend Mr. Scorpio and just went along with his drug-fueled idea. Hmm. Yeah, Flash Funk, he's so funky. Any more thoughts on some of the WWF? Because we're a jumps-based show, so I don't know if we can consider like scrap pickups no matter what role they had to play in the future of history. We talked about Deborah, but uh, the guy who uh, jumped back to WWF in, on a couple of occasions in a weird fashion was Jeff Jarrett. That was mm-hmm. a guy you really couldn't pin down. and 
I don't know. Um, his him coming back to WF and doing the NWA thing in in '98 after having kind of a I don't know his his run in WCW was it was not much to write home about. Um, it was just yeah. I, I think it, he feels like a guy that really never should have left the WF at any point. I think if he had just stuck true there, I think he would have had a better career for himself. But I don't know. He was more happy to burn bridges and start his own thing. So Apparently the trajectory of Jeff Jarrett biographically that we can pull out from a long view here is like up to this summer. I guess Jeff Jarrett is just a fucking weirdo as a businessman when it comes to how he comes and goes from these places. He just can't sit still. And it always has to be a big confusing deal. And going back to what we were saying about Nitro and the need to pull guys in from WWF, it was strange when you had a bona fide WWF uh, acquisition to be a new surprising man in the NWO uh, who would fit it perfectly. I mean, I guess he is kind of Southern for uh, pretend New Jersey people like Kevin Nash uh, that comprise that group. And Minnesotans being Cuban and all that. But um, yeah, for him to go in the horseman and be like, yes, I am one of those people who have left WWF to show up here, but I enjoy tradition. Let me try to make friends with the horseman perpetually. Which was basically exactly like what Kurt Hennig did, but then he turned on the horseman. Yes. And I right. wonder if that was an early idea for Jeff Jarrett that they just ended up shelving for whatever reason and then used it for Kurt Hennig. Seems like an idea they used for almost everybody at one point, and the fact that he never did it was probably just an oversight. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you have a Jeff Jarrett to plug in at the time, then maybe they didn't need the Giant and some of the WCW guys. They turned just when it, they needed the numbers to be like, oh my god, the NWO has acquired Scott Norton. The one exception I'd say is probably Buff, because he did sort of... Um, branch out a little bit with his turn on uh scott riggs and being an nwo guy oh yeah nwo was clearly and and turning into nwo was clearly a big career upshift for buff bagwell since the nwo is a rogue organization and people jumped from wcw to nwo i think we're allowed to talk about it i would say um since people talk a lot about the watering down of it the only people I would let join the expanded NWO would probably be Buff Bagwell and Conan. Does that make sense? I haven't put a lot of thought into this, but I was gonna inter- I was gonna interject if you didn't say Conan because that was the immediate one that came to mind, and that's sort of what you're talking about of sort of secondary players. I like Norton. Um, I thought Norton was a good kind of muscle guy in the group. And I, I really liked the vicious and delicious tag team of Norton and Bagwell. So I would have kept Norton too. I, uh, I, yeah, I agree on Conan and um, yeah, Bagwell. Bagwell was a good, annoying guy to have in the crew. But um, And Scott Steiner eventually, but that was later down the road. Although I did very much enjoy me some Dungeon of Doom Conan. Those were good times as well. <laughs> you know, Scott Steiner, I... I don't think it was necessarily about it, but I, I think he might have been better off doing his own thing as a heel. I don't think... I think he kind of got lost in the interview. I don't think he needed to be in there, and I think it kind of suppressed him a little bit. And um, 
not that the guys are not that WCW was known as a company which kind of gave guys sort of room to grow and uh, was it wasn't that sort of environment. But if it was, I think uh, Scott Steiner outside the NWO being allowed to flourish as his own guy, which he kind of eventually did a couple of years later. Um, he was one of the not that I've seen a huge amount of it, but from at least from what I hear, he was one of the sort of bright sparks of like the last year, year and a half of WCW when he was kind of doing his own thing as a heel with his, uh, with his freaks, mm-hmm. Medeja and Shakira, I believe. Right. That is correct. She, uh, she Shakira really, uh, went on to bigger things. You're really, uh, once she got away from big Papa pump, she, she really cemented her own spot. Like, like with him getting away from the end of it was good for him. With Shakira getting away from Scott Steiner and then being able to make her own relationships like that with Wyclef or um, Jared mm. uh, PK, I think she Pitbull uh, three, <laughs> Pitbull three, <laughs> I like it. Um, she uh, she was able to uh, broaden her horizons a lot as well. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I was just kind of uh, getting into internet connoisseurship of, of wrestling in '99. So it was very confusing when they were like Scott Steiner and Shakira, and I kept thought they, they saying that I was there, Shapiro, and I was like, "Am I? Am I one of the freaks?" <laughs> you wish, <laughs> guys. If you haven't seen it, um, and this goes for everyone else, uh, look up um, Rick and Scott Steiner and Sh- Shonies. Are you guys familiar with Shonies? It's I believe from my research an American wholesome family fast food restaurant those are almost all the exact words i was going to use to explain it to you if you were not aware of what it was yes i'm also familiar with shoney's is, is shoney's one of the regional ones or is that everywhere it's semi-reach maybe has like a, a fuddruckers penetration i've never been to one in spite of knowing what it is it's myself neither i've just peed in the sink here. <laughs> Rick and Scott, in the height of brotherhood, have uh, opened up a Shoney's franchise and uh, together as brothers, which warms my heart. And there's a video on YouTube of um, basically very dramatized footage of them destroying the old lotion um, uh, with a uh, big bulldozer type thing and i guess building it up from scratch and uh, it's quite hysterical it's just about like a minute and a half long but it's it's so so good and uh yeah it warmed my heart to see the brothers having fun together that is good to hear now is it true that the slogan is rick steiner based and he says if you don't it's on the menu and he says if you want some of this food come get some of this food and if you don't like it bite it which is not great advice because if you don't like the food why would you bite it and get the taste in your mouth so do you want to address that alan that good question that i just asked you i will choose that if you don't like it bite it (laughs) the food i'd like to bite into some shonies Mm. if it's anything as good as the chick-fil-a I experienced in uh, it's, California. It's almost certainly not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Chick-fil-A is phenomenal. Best fast food. Everyone was on about In-N-Out Burger and how I need to get In-N-Out Burger in California. And whilst the In-N-Out Burger was, was pretty good, it held nothing to the Chick-fil-A. The Chick-fil-A really opened my eyes to what fast food could be. Hmm. Yes, I, I, I fully forgive uh, that restaurant 
chain for their uh, their bigotry uh, because it's <laughs> yeah. so tasty. That also <laughs> got explained to me as well by Chick Fil A. Okay. It is a, a decent trade off, and it is funny every time I go in the old supermarket aisle. And I don't really know anything about the brands of pasta noodles I buy, but I see Barria, and I say, oh, I know your whole deal, Barria. <laughs> Good job, because I will never, ever not associate that with you. Um, well, Alan, it sounds like you've had some great meals, and <laughs> Steiners are providing a good down-home family dining experience. Are both those statements accurate? Yeah, American family dining experience. Well, something else that is quintessentially American was the Civil War, the War of Northern Aggression, and uh, let's talk about Antietam. <laughs> yeah, uh, stillness at Appomattox, of course, um, which is uh, that the former general manager of Raw, right, Brad Appomattox. Uh, the Sickening institution of slavery is, of course, what I'm talking about. And you referred earlier to some indentured servitude. Uh, Psychologically, WCW and WWF, I think it is fairly funny. uh, The standpoint in 2015, when WWE is such an overdog and so, like, obnoxious and ubiquitous and just, like, overbearing, that they have baby-faced WCW as an idea and a company and a history um, through the sheer force of them or the non-force of them not existing. It's like the best thing that could have ever happened to WCW's reputation is for WWE to do everything they've done since they became the only game in town. It makes people say, hey, quit picking on WCW. When WCW was, to general sentiment, like the big time obnoxious heel promotion at the time, they were the ones with the uh, the fat cats on top, and the WWF was the one with hungry opportunities for hard workers. Is that why they hired like plumbers and bin men? <laughs> they allowed people to supplement their income, which they did to this day with Kane moonlighting as an office worker. Not no, anymore. That's right. Poor Kane. Um, losing his job. No, but I mean, it's true because like the guys that WCW was bringing at the time were generally guys on the downside of their career. You know, guys that had sort of reached their peak and now they were, you know, still stars, but they were sort of moving down. But the guys that WF was bringing in were generally the opposite, generally guys that hadn't reached the peak of their careers yet. So it sort of, it gave you sort of an underdog feel because you were bringing in the guys that were going to sort of grow with WF, whereas WCW was perceived as taking advantage of the fame of the guys that it had already created in WF. I mean, that's a narrative that WF obviously likes to play up um, because it makes them sort of seem more competent, the ones that are creating <laughs> stars. But there's truth to it. You know, like the the guys that the WCW were bringing in were guys like Bret Hart, Lex Luger, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, um, you know, they, they, all Piper, all guys that had reached the peak, whereas guys like Sean Waltman, Chris Jericho, the the Radicals, even the Giant were guys that were um, still uh, relatively young. And with the exception of maybe X-Pac, you can sort of argue what the peak of his career was. But, I mean, I think there's there's no question that Jericho went on to greater things. Um I mean, I guess Giant was sort of the same level throughout his career, but always a guy that was a uh, a player and had plenty of years before him. And then, you know, guys like Ben Juan, Eddie Guerrero, obviously would reach the peak of their careers in uh, WWE. 
Well, X Pac was the first guy. Like when the when the NWO jump happened and Hall and Nash went over to WCW with all these like shots being fired and actual talk about like real things regarding the, the two promotions as opposed to like your billionaire Ted skits, which were just a joke. But X Pac coming back to WF was really the first time a cool hip seeming guy on TV was speaking in that way and and taking those shots at the opposition as X Pac was in his early promo on Bischoff and just the whole aura of his character. I think even though he couldn't wrestle for the first, I think was it a month or so after he jumped, he really seemed like a um, an interesting fire rod of a guy to have is that the word fire rod um to have around but uh he um i i think they they pushed him too far into the background with dx he was kind of made too much of a background player that it didn't he didn't take off like he could have and he had a nice little run of popularity as dx got super popular and as wf got super popular but i think if he was maybe pushed a little bit more to the forefront. He he could have been even more, even though that was his probably biggest career run. Well, the fitting thing is that Jeff Jarrett, who we were just talking about, also went from WCW to WWF, I think just three or four months before that. And no one talks about the game changer of Jeff Jarrett arriving in late 1997, whereas Xbox arrival uh, the night after WrestleMania is uh, just part of like a perfect storm of the tide shifting and Tyson and Austin and Vince McMahon and uh, D-Generation X and all that just cresting at the same time. So X-Pac was maybe more of a side effect than a cause of all that, but he was very symbolic in terms of, you know, his relationships to all the principal players involved. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't about it wasn't about the individual players involved. It was about the narrative, and that was there was a narrative shift. X Pac was saying, you know, we're the cool promotion. Um, that's the lame promotion. You know, calling it out in basically those terms, talking about WF and WCW. Now, I mean, it's sort of ironic because Hall and Nash had done basically the same thing in in uh, when they showed up in WCW. Only they were calling WCW the lame promotion <laughs> as well um, for different reasons. Um, it was sort of a similar dynamic, but they aimed their their guns in in a similar way. And X Pac really sort of fit into the, into what Hall and Nash have been doing the whole time. You know, saying, you know, basically we're the cool ones, and and this Southern wrestling is uh, is lame, and uh, they do it better up north. It should suck it was a thing that he and kiss my butt. And things like that. Ooh, he dare. And Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan are two two guys that maybe weren't that cool. Somebody's opening so, up something. No, I would never try desperately to get the plastic wrapper off this box of raisins. <laughs> what about me? What about raisins? Uh, he went to WCW, huh? <laughs> Remember we were talking about him? Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I would like to continue <laughs> what I had been um, eloquently setting up as a, a metaphor of the Underground Railroad escaping the indentured servants of the Turner promotion to the north and freedom and opportunity. Um, although when you think about, like, motivated hard workers who were really ready to roll up their sleeves and dive in, 
Uh, Paul White at the end of 1998 and early 99 is maybe not the best example, but he um, it wasn't until he was actually in WWF and bead fairly fat for a while and out of shape that it was not uh, seen as the, the coup it was. And it is, again, still the momentum of uh, taking the fresh-faced people. And uh, while he never became Andre the Giant... It was the arrow pointing that direction as far as uh, opportunities and all that. And then he did come out of the ring uh, like a, a real strong man. And mess up immediately, but still. He was a big corporate giant, and everyone thought he was going to be named Titan, which he then wasn't. Any thoughts on the debut of the big, nasty Paul White? It was um, it was pretty sure. I was actually in hospital that day uh, having a procedure and um, my cousin had taped St. Valentine's Day Massacre for me. This would have been the Monday. And um, uh, I remember all day in hospital where I had to fast all day, I couldn't eat food, and I was just really, really looking forward to A, watching St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and B, having a battered sausage, which is not something I think uh, you uh, guys would be overly familiar with in your part of the world, but a battered sausage, a staple. It's not on the menu at Shoney's, I'll tell you that. <laughs> a staple of a um, family-friendly Irish chipper, as we call them over here, uh, where, um, yes, run by Italians usually. Um, but, uh, yeah. Batter sausage. Really wanted one of them. Really wanted to to watch St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and I did. And I was watching Stone Cold whoop that ass, and I was taking great enjoyment out of it. And then from the ring, as you said, came Paul White, and uh, I had read in my Power Slam magazine because I was now a newly hip Power Slam magazine subscriber, getting all the scoops. I'd read about Paul White being in a. Uh, contract negotiations with WF and possibly jumping and uh, sure enough he well he didn't jump but he came through the ring and uh, it was uh, it was pretty uh, crazy I was I was going nuts over it and um, he ended up uh, screwing up his debut by Stone Cold winning anyway which kind of got him off to a faltering start to say the least but uh I was still pretty excited to see the guy appear on Raw each week after that, but they kind of, between changing the name and not being consistent on the name and kind of having them lose quite early, it was it was a bumbling start for, for old Big Show. I'll defend the start of it. Like, obviously losing to Austin was a huge mistake, but, like, I thought the execution of what happened at, at St. Devontide's Day Massacre was overall was, was pretty darn good. I mean, number one... Oh, yeah. It was. It was a, I I shouldn't say. I I thought that was a good angle, but in terms of like character and storyline, like he 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 failed in what his task was on that night. But as for the product, I thought it was it was a well done piece of business. I mean, in spite of him failing in terms of helping Vince McMahon out, like number one, it was like a really big spot, you know, cause that was the Austin McMahon match after the culmination of this feud forever. So that was like a really big pay-per-view to, to debut at as sort of a surprise. And 
the reason he failed was that he was so powerful that he threw Austin into this cage and the cage broke. Like, it, it wasn't like he was sort of bumbling and he tripped and, you know, fell on himself or he accidentally hit the wrong guy. I mean, the story was this guy was so powerful that he broke the cage and Austin somehow managed to survive. And I, I don't think that that um, undermined him. Him getting pinned by Austin a few weeks later um, was a different story. My recollection is, yeah, he was immediately slotted at the level of Austin and Rock, and they would all uh, trade barbs on the microphone. Um, And it immediately seemed like, well, yeah, this is just what should be happening right now. You insert a the giant into the WF main event picture, and what a a big get, what a big opportunity. And then it, it... I guess it wouldn't be a big show WWF career if he hadn't like turned babyface <laughs> at the very next pay-per-view. <laughs> and so the whole angle of him uh, being the the great enforcer and power of the corporation, which logically wouldn't it be funny to like de-russify the booking of of 1999 and apply to like 1980s Southern Territory standards where like the big show becomes the new top heel and turfs out the rock who turns babyface and things like that uh instead it just kind of like all happened at once and the big shows a face and triple h is a heel and he and the rock and uh, rick flair and akita koloff ricky steamboat and tully blanchard formed the union and uh, (laughs) (laughs) come after uh come after arn anderson that should be a project for another show but we'd have to get out our big guest booker big paper you can write bookings on and say who's going up and down and things like that um yeah he's a big nasty bastard and by the summer he was in like the feud with kane and hardcore holly and they did some things and tried some things and ultimately he has done a whole lot in wwf it's just um initially he was supposed to like be built up for a year as the Andre the Giant to Steve Austin and recreate WrestleMania 3. And instead, Steve Austin beat Andre the Giant three weeks later by hitting with a chair a bunch of times. But regardless, we're here to talk about the jumps, man. And um, maybe uh, this is the best one? Yeah, I feel comfortable saying this is the best one. Uh, Paul White the Big Nasty shows up in February. Then over the summer... Countdown starts for the millennium, and oh, what could it be? What kind of mysterious person could it be? Oh, only exactly what all the hopes and dreams of uh, hardcore fans at the time was, and it was. It. Do you know who it was, Alan? I was on mute. I wasn't expecting a question. <laughs> See, he doesn't know. I think that's a no. <laughs> Alan, you are a fraud. It was, uh, are you talking about uh, Mr. Y2J? Yeah, I am. Wasn't that a great thing that happened? It was indeed. Um, hang on, let me reposition myself. You, why don't you talk? I'm going back on mute for a second. Well, I will throw it to the team man in a second, but it, it is kind of similar to uh, Big Show and also the next ones on the list where... The immediate impact angle was perfect, but then you just kind of have to ignore the shakiness and the political uh, aftershocks that um, didn't let these guys hit the ground running like Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and start laying out the roster uh, in, in mass. Um, 
But as far as nailing the, the primary angles, which luckily for them and their successful careers is something you can focus on and dedicate a whole chapter to a DVD, uh, to DVDs, that's not really a thing anymore, but, you know, a network documentary. So Chris Jericho, yes, he had uh, an incredible entrance uh, production-wise and build-up-wise, and then he squared off with The Rock, and it was a wonderful thing, if only for one joyous night in Chicago. Todd, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is like the end of your where there isn't that much to say in the sense that it's so well covered, but I think with, with Jericho, and I agree with you, this one was, was you know probably the best one that happened, um, if not you know right up there. It was so well done that I think it, it, it provided currency years later, even when he wasn't being pushed very well, because it was like, well, Jericho was a guy that was debuted so strong, so that you know, really speaks to him being someone that's important, even when he wasn't being presented as someone important, you know, a year later. I think, really, it was it was so well done that it carried on for, for longer than most of these things do. Certainly nobody remembered, you know, the Giants' debut a few years later in terms of their perceptions at that time. I think with Jericho, people always think back to that debut. You just kind of have to do an ellipsis, because um, had a great WWF career, Chris Jericho did. It's just that he went from going toe-to-toe with The Rock with regard to uh, a jabroni named Huvitude. But then he was feuding with Road Dog and Ken Shamrock. Then he was losing to China. And he was interacting <laughs> with Mr. Hughes and Howard Finkel, which in yes. theory, trying to recreate the Ralph's stuff possibly a good idea, but it just didn't really work, especially with who he was feuding with. Um, mm-hmm. Shamrock, I think, could have had potential to be like what I think Jericho wants the Goldberg thing to be because Goldberg, Shamrock, very similar personalities, styles, that type of thing. Um, but Shamrock obviously much more willing to do business, except that he wasn't and he left. But I don't <laughs> think that was the reason. Um, I I, I would have liked to have seen how that would have developed, but obviously Shamrock left and then it was on the China thing, which just brought in the whole clash of egos, clash of personalities whatever you want to call it with triple h um the jealousy that i guess there was from triple h to jericho um so it was really faltering after that hot start i just remember um after the first show just really being excited to see what he'd do week to week and they slowly beat me down with it being it was like nothing it became clear they didn't really have a big thing for him to sink his teeth into was the second show he he came out and he interrupted Big Show and um, Undertaker during that amazing promo about getting <laughs> lost in the desert. That's right. Todd, are you familiar with that promo? We've talked about it on this show before. I was not. Oh, was it with, with you? you? Okay, awesome. yeah. I uh, I was informed about it with you guys. Okay, yeah, I knew I talked about it on the show on a show. Most likely with Justin, but I wasn't sure if it was with you also. Yeah. No, 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 I think what happened actually was you brought it up originally with a show with Justin, and then there was a callback to it in a show with me, and I was like, what's going on, guys? <laughs> <laughs> we had to fill you in. Yes. It is really something you need to be up to speed on because you never know when you're in a friendship of three people uh, when two of them are going to take you out to the desert and then take your big Titan motorcycle <laughs> and leave you there and wonder if you'll land on the correct answer to skin us for our hides and wear them to survive the desert cold. <laughs> who do you think is who in that scenario? 
Now, I'm very passive and sneaky, <laughs> yes. and I know I'm Paul Bearer in this, I'm Brother Paul in this scenario, but which of the two of you do you think you are? Explain the other two, because yeah, you, you're definitely, I feel like you're definitely the one most capable of uh, of getting the other two of us into some sort of calamitous situation right. through trickery. <laughs> now, The Undertaker was uh, a, an unscrupulous man at this point in time, and I think he was taking the big show under his wing to teach him how to be so evil and beat people up. So he taught him a lesson by... <laughs> driving out to the desert and then abandoning him there to teach him uh, an important lesson about stuff and okay. being merciless. I think you're Paul Barrow, I'm Undertaker, and uh, Alan Cunahan is the innocent Big Show. Yes, sweet, naive. <laughs> One key difference, I ain't, I ain't arriving back with no snakeskin boots. <laughs> I am in a snake's belly very quickly. Yes, I, th- I think the key line there was like, yeah, Big Show skinned the snakes and wore them back. His initial gambit was that he was going to, like, stab Undertaker in his sleep, and Undertaker was like, nice try, big man, but I don't sleep. <laughs> is this ringing a bell? Yeah, yeah. sleep is the cousin of death. It, it was like, he was like, that's the right, he was like, what would we do if uh, the, we had to survive out here? Big Show was like, I'd stab you in your sleep and eat you to the, and Undertaker was like, that's the right answer. One problem, I don't sleep. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, and and you're, you don't have enough petrol to get back or something like that. So, That's exactly it. Yeah. Yep. And I know, like, with almost certitude that I've read this verbatim before, but it, it <laughs> never hurts just to reconnect with the material. I'll quote once for, just for your edification. Uh, so they're in the middle of Death Valley on these on these big hogs. And uh, it's 120 degrees, and the Big Show's bike runs out of gas. And the Undertaker pulls up to him, and he asks this question. It's 120 degrees. How are you going to survive? And Show looks him straight in the eyes without hesitation. He says, I'm going to wait till you sleep. I'm going to stab you in the back. I'm going to cut your flesh off, make a coat of it, and I'm going to eat your flesh until I find food. And I said, good answer, big man, but I don't sleep. And I drove off, and I left him. Anyway, so... Take weights on the outskirts of the desert, and two days later, I wants the big show with what a snake necktie. What was he doing on the outskirts of the desert for that whole two days? That's what I, I think he was know. just driving wheelies and like kicking dust <laughs> up, telling tales of this business with a brother Paul. Anyway, yeah, that was a story that Jericho was uh, he mistakenly interrupted because it was very interesting, <laughs> contrary to what he said. Um. I will say the one thing about Jericho and and talking about this narrative and what people represented, X-Pac was in a cool act and jumped to another cool act and made it a different kind of cool act, but he had been in the WWF and he had been a pushed guy in in the uh, NWO and the, the Wolfpack crew, and he was known as their friends and these guys' friends. Giant, of course, was maybe not adequately or ideally utilized uh once he got far into his wcw run but he very much seemed like the kind of guy uh wwf needed to make a big play for and he you know he'd already been a world champion he'd worked on top with uh, hulk hogan and and many people but jericho was just so creative and such a burgeoning talent in 1998 and was just like the 
perfect metaphor for the the way you could get stuck over there and he did like even more than a lot of the talented guys over in uh, 98 wcw and even uh just kind of made up his own angle with one of the top guys and still couldn't even get it to the point where they could even have a match where he would lose so for him just uh what that represented for the notion of chris jericho to be able to uh raise his stock and and get a real opportunity even though it didn't exactly play out the way uh in the immediacy was like that's the the kind of the linchpin of this story a lot more so than dx driving the tank to uh uh, the norfolk whatever largely i think the the deal with jericho is that he needed to wait for reinforcements and they were they were on their way shortly um if this is an invitation to discuss the radicals jump um they were like something new and fresh and I, I think something new and fresh in WF really was needed because if you look at so 98, 99 and then compare it to 2000, like the first six months of 2000, there's a real different flavor to the promotion. A lot of new faces, a lot of new storylines, a lot of new feuds. Austin was gone with the injury. Um, the radicals coming in were a real personification, I suppose, of that change. And um, I remember being really disappointed when they turned them heel because I wanted to really cheer them. Um, but I think it probably, I don't know, what do you think, guys? Did it make sense in hindsight to have turned them heel? I think maybe it would have, but not so quickly. I think you could have got a bit of more of a run out of them as faces at the start. A lot of the nature of the Radicals jump was just how fast the whole thing played out to where it almost seemed too good to be true. Like with Jericho, he was negotiating with WWF and he was off WCW, uh, WCW TV for a long time before August and when he showed up. Um, they didn't leave him on TV to job him out. He just kind of disappeared. The Radicals were being if you can call it pushed, whatever it means to be utilized as characters in the psychedelic fever dream that was Vince Russo's uh, WCW, um, they were being used as, I think, the revolution or something like that, and uh, at least through some accidents of injury. Chris Benoit won the WCW World Heavyweight Championship from or in a match with Sid on a Sunday, and then they came to TV the next day and were like, no, can we can we just leave? Can we just go? And they were like, fine, get out of here. And then I don't know if it was the next Monday or two Mondays from then, but then they were there in the, in the uh, uh, front row on Raw in Pittsburgh, I believe, although I was not at that show. Um, so there was no big countdown to the millennium. It was just like hey, what if all those uh, guys that you loved in WCW could just immediately be in WWF? That was uh, very much seemed too good to be true. And then to come in with that kind of impact uh, was was incredibly like exciting in all the ways we talked about Jericho being a story of like merit and uh, forward achievement. Um, and then... Uh, the, the political setbacks and the fact that uh, maybe you can't come in and beat up the whole roster 
with uh, baseball bats the way Hall and Nash did, and in fact, you will lose all your matches instead, <laughs> is uh, the counterpoint to this. Todd, your take. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't thought about it that way before, Justin, but I think you frame it well. Like, for people that were sort of rooting for WF or WCW at this point, which was pretty much everyone because the product was so much better, um, it really was sort of like, you know, just like this great development. Like, wow, all these really good guys from WCW are all just going to immediately go to WF where we assume they're going to be used better. So it was, I, I, it's sort of what I imagine like other teams. Um, feel like when they get to when they make a deal with Dan Snyder's Redskins, you know, like wow, we we actually got all that stuff for uh, for that one pick. Um, it's just sort of this unexpected windfall that comes from nowhere. Reminds me quite a bit of the Martin Erat Philip Forsberg trade between <laughs> oh, the you, Predators oh, and Oh you <clears throat> oh you bastard! How oh. yeah, pee in my sinks, Todd. I'll get a receipt on that. Ah. <laughs> oh. oh. But it is. I mean, it is pretty much exactly like that. So, <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, I, I. If if you're not familiar with this, Alan, it's it's a it's a hockey reference here, and the the the, the Washington Capitals. Um, were struggling to make the playoffs, and their, their their general manager, George McPhee, who had been the, the Washington Capitals general manager for a very long time, and I thought was a good general manager, uh, but a lot of fans didn't like him, and they wanted him gone, and he knew that he was, you know, he was at the end of his rope, and I always defended the guy, but, you know, it was his last year, and, you know, he needed to do something, and so, and obviously there were no good trades out there, so he's like, eh? You know, I, I'm going to get fired in three months anyway. I might as well make a Hail Mary to try to save my job. <laughs> and he trades away the best prospect in the system for some bum. Just a, a <laughs> mediocre fourth-line player who means absolutely nothing. The the, the mediocre fourth-line player um, did absolutely nothing. They had to, like, give something to give him away the next year. And, of course, the player they traded away, who was the best prospect in their system, ended up being one of the best young players in the league, and the general manager got fired in three months anyway. And I will always hate George McPhee for that, and now, Justin, I'm always going to hate you <laughs> for bringing that up. It's okay, though, because the Penguins did the same thing with a French-Canadian man named Simone Depré a year later. So Yeah, but it's the uh, Penguins. They deserve to have bad things befall them. I'm trying to empathize <laughs> sounds, with you. Sounds like the Colts uh, getting uh, Trent Richardson in that big trade. The Trent Richardson trade was a much, much, much better trade than the, the, uh, than the E-Rat trade. So Bill Bush is George McPhee, <laughs> and then I guess Ted Turner is Ted Leonsis, or AOL Time Warner is Ted, and then Kevin Sullivan must be Boudreaux, Benoit is Philip Forsberg. That all makes sense, right? And I'm trying to think of some who would be me, some like little WCW oh. fan is just like <laughs> completely discouraged by the whole thing. I'm I'm uh Maybe I'm, Cody Rhodes. Uh, yeah, I was, yeah, there you go. Exactly. I'm <laughs> Cody Rhodes. <laughs> hmm. What a great story. A sad story, but a a poignant one. Anyway, um so yeah, it took him Benoit did he went right into matches with the Rock, which is um uh more than Jericho can say. Jericho had to do like an apprenticeship while he learned WWF style and learned like how to carry himself in uh, that company that story's all there in the book benoit first match the uncrowned world champion versus the wwf world champion triple h and he did lose so 
there was a, a limitation put on that off the bat, but he did go into uh, matches with The Rock. Um, Eddie, I think, was a great character right off the bat. It wasn't until after he got fired and maybe got a little healthier from the accident he had been in the year before and uh, clean uh, headed for the time being that he really started to like become a major uh, top card player in WWF. But just having them there improved the wrestling quality on the show, and I think it was it made all the other people who they had added at the time, Angle and Edge and Christian and the Hardys, get a lot better. And even The Rock himself, to a degree, got, became a lot better wrestlers by getting to work with Benoit and Guerrero right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of... That, oh, I mean, it, it, it helped The Rock a ton. Yeah, Rock's doing dragon screws after the smash against <laughs> Benoit. And sloppy sharpshooters. <laughs> no, but just in general, in terms of like working at a pace and... Just the way he built matches, uh, I think The Rock did improve a lot as a wrestler getting to work those guys. And this is almost kind of a sad one because the next big swath of WWF jumps that we talk about, if we ever finish this show <laughs> and this concept, this point is looking like a three-parter, and we'll see, is um, by that point, WWF is going to be very much in charge, calling their own shots, maintaining locker room structure, and the um, the small political handicaps that were imposed on Jericho and Benoit when they first showed up are going to be like uh, dealt with in a big way when it comes time to bring in all of the WCW people uh, as well as one ECW guy that they wanted to keep. But is there anyone else from the late 90s three-company period of people uh, you would like to discuss, such as perhaps people from the Land of Extreme? Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of interesting ones. Like uh, I mentioned in in our, in our production notes, um, I, I like the the Dudleys and Stevie Richards in that they were like the time machine jumps where they not only switched promotions, but then they just pretended to be their previous characters from years past. I, I wish we saw more of that, where Stevie Richards just like all of a sudden is Raven's Funky again. I thought that was kind of amusing. And Bubba Ray, after you know losing his stutter for years, picks back up his stutter. Um, I think that would be sort of great if, you know, like you brought in like some guy from like TNA and they were doing their, like their 2007 gimmick. Um, that would, that would be amusing to me. I also, I enjoyed the, the Brian Pillman thing where not only in terms of like the, the jump itself being entertaining and interesting, but it was just sort of a lot of interesting stuff going on. You know, the fake jump to ECW where he pretended to jump to ECW, but he wasn't really jumping to ECW. He was just pretending to jump there. Um, but then, of course, he tricked Eric Bischoff into um, the real jump to WBF. But, I mean, the stuff in ECW was was really good. Like, I remember that felt that felt like real at the time, which sounds silly in, in hindsight, you know, given that it was so obviously a wrestling angle looking back at it. But, like, Pillman had, had built up so much of this sort of aura about him that when he showed up in ECW Arena and was talking about how he's Brian fucking Pillman and, you know, threatening to urinate in the ring, he was acting so wacky that he had people believing that, you know, he was legitimately crazy. I mean, Bobby Heenan famously uh, flipped out when Pillman came near him and, and near his neck at the Clash of the Champions because he was just sort of a wild man. And, uh, you know, they did a very much sort of an insider angle with Todd Gordon and Paul Heyman talking about this wasn't the deal, and you get the Booker Man references, and Shane Douglas is yelling he's shooting. I mean, when you when you look <laughs> at it in in hindsight, and I watched this back when we were uh, preparing for the original show, so I haven't seen it since then, but I did watch it then, and it looks so fake. 
looking back at it. But at the time, like it, it was so unique that there there was a lot more credibility to it, and it was very entertaining. I, I kind of linked Pillman in my head to like an Eddie Gilbert, a guy who just super interesting and could have gone and done so much and been so influential in the business, but just lifestyle choices and and recreational activities just put it put a stop to all that and the car accident which was sort of linked to those but like i think he could have had those things and still recovered from them if he hadn't just been so destroyed by the car accident yes that's fair it's also interesting to to go all the way back to to mark marrow that the people wwf made the biggest deal out of acquiring with the most build-up and the like pomp and circumstance around the acquisition were Marrow and Brian Pillman. They're the ones who had big introductions. And uh, uh, certainly Pillman, if he'd been healthy, could have been a big contributor. And I think Marrow did pretty darn fine at times, but they weren't like the actual uh, people behind the Renaissance, ironically. Oh, also, Todd, isn't it funny with the Dudleys? Also, your example from TNA, I think, just happened again with Bubba Ray Dudley because maybe for five seconds when he came out in the Royal Rumble, it was like, oh, shit, the bully Ray, this mean old heel who's reinvented himself to enter the top of the card as a genuine rude dude. What a challenger he could be for a John Cena. And then it was like, no, you be tables, man, again. And he was like, yes, sir. <laughs> and one thing I, I, that I get a kick out of the whole thing is how out of his way Bubba Ray goes to get in the stupid WWE terminology. Like, whenever <laughs> he does, like, the the uh, interviews, even outside of WWE, he's, he's sure to make reference to WWE Universe at least five or six times so that they know that he's happy to be there and content to shovel their, their buzzwords down your throat like a good WWE soldier. Alan, any closing thoughts? We're going to put WCW and ECW out of business by the time we return for the next show. Jumping. What a crazy thing. Well, Contracts. I, th- I thought we were going to get into um, Hall of Fame discussion just before. You surely uh, are. I just wanted to make sure you didn't have anything more to say about the prior stuff. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, no, I'm good. Okay. Format shift. Initiate. We did a Hall of Fame voting show on your show, Alan's show, in the old times, the halcyon days of the three of us. <laughs> and... Uh, now, because like uh, the way SoundCloud scrubs for for copyright violations and things like that, if we tuck it here in the end of the show, we won't get any flack from uh, the old company. But uh, yes, the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, one of the most prestigious Wikipedia articles that a wrestler can have his name edited onto. <laughs> one thing we do know is that seven lucky people are going to be there for the ceremony on Dave's lawn in San Jose, getting those plaques uh, sometime in the next couple months. Would you like to hazard any guesses on who you think some of these uh, jackpot winners might be? Um, I'm going to guess uh, we can maybe trade back and forth guesses and then we'll see how when we, we hit seven, but uh, I think my first guy that I think is uh, is going in this year is a uh, Peril Guayo Jr., my thought for this is I think there's going to be a lot of uh, people who follow the Mark Madden approach of, and I paraphrase, I never really followed Lucha. 
I don't know who most of these guys are, <laughs> but clearly you got to vote this guy for Hall of Fame. And he voted for Pero Guayo Jr. and nobody else in the category. Which, if ever there is a uh, a symbol of how um, the reasonings for why so many of those Lucha guys like Villano Tree and people like that, who many have felt are just mortal lock hall of famers and haven't been able to get in i think it's for reasons like that and a lot of people dipping into the lucha category like mr madden did there and i think there'll be a lot of dippers in to vote for pero uh, this year not that i don't think he's deserving well, i'm not saying that whatsoever but i think he will it will be uh um i think there will be a lot of that for him this year and as a result he will get in um uh, yeah I know he'd be my first guy that comes to mind, Todd. You sort of threw a curveball here with going one at a time. I'm, I'm trying to think like whether there's strategy to mentioning one guy first or another guy first. Right, because the first one who hits one who isn't in is eliminated from the game. <laughs> yeah, like it's kind of an improv. I didn't even really have a logic behind doing it like this, but now that we kind of established, I think it's a. I think I probably would have even taken someone else other than Pero, but uh, I've given you the the opportunity to take perhaps a more obvious one. Well, that's what you did. Is you, you put the pressure on us unexpectedly. Yeah, yeah, I'm sort of thrown off. I, I, Pero is not one of the seven I'm thinking. And one thing, by the way, in terms of what this could be, if one of, for example, one of the trios from Mexico got in, which is a possibility, then that would sort of throw the math for a loop rather than having... Um, and Dave just said there were seven point. people. So it could, in fact, Ooh. be a lot fewer. Uh, I'm fewer looking acts. forward to everyone being really disappointed when it's like uh, <laughs> six guys getting in um, who weren't on the ballot. Like, what's the term? Um, Recognize a historical overlook. Yeah, be like, be did you know there were uh, actually six more guys in the Dusek Riot Squad? Well, we, we ran the numbers and they're all in. <laughs> I don't know why I found that so funny. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's gonna be everyone's gonna be vastly disappointed with six guys nobody's ever heard of, and like Daniel Bryan. But on peril, I I I am not with you on that, Alan. I I am not thinking that that's gonna happen in terms of like a big a big bump. Um, great. I was really surprised you got pretty big bumps for Steve Williams and Curtis Iakea, two of the more surprising, in my opinion, entries in the Hall of Fame. So I think you might have sort of a similar dynamic there. Um, but I think because that region is so strong, I think it's more it's it's more difficult for that sort of thing to happen because there's so many other people that are sort of pulling votes away, even taking into account the fact you're talking about, which is people that might other might other otherwise be voting there that would be jumping in. I don't know if Pero was um, a, a big enough figure a, that that would be a lot, lot of that. coverage this year, Todd. There was – he – everyone was talking about him. Like the U.S. indie scene, like just it, – it broke – it broke through so much. I think Lucha Underground being up and running at that point had a lot to do with it, but it got a, a lot of coverage. Yeah, I mean it's it's possible. I was There were shows over here in Europe around that time where like people were doing like paro spots of – uh, like people are cutting promos and like talking about uh, the great loss of Paraguay. Like, Jesus, I couldn't have even, I wouldn't have even thought anyone here knew Paraguay was. Up, I think it was just, I know it was really covered like a big deal. I think Ray being involved and the way the footage of the death was online, just the whole way it all went down. I, I don't know. I think it, it made 
made him a, a bigger deal to people who might not have been as who might not be the biggest Lucha fans um, or know the ins and outs of Lucha or the history of Lucha that well. But I don't know. I I kind of I don't hope that I'm wrong in the sense of hoping he doesn't get in because actually part of me thinks uh, it, it, he is a Hall of Famer. Um, but I hope I'm wrong in the sense that I hope he's not just getting in like that. Yeah, I mean it's. It's certainly possible. I, I guess we'll see. And hey, I mean, like you bring up Lucha Underground. If everyone that uh, if everyone that watches Lucha Underground votes for him, that'll get him up all the way to about twenty percent. So that's a good start there. <laughs> um, <Zing. laughs> uh, my my first guess for someone that's going to get in, I, I've, I I'll go with the obvious. I think uh, I think this is Brock Lesnar's year. I think he uh, he finally gets in after a number of years of going. I. I decided for the first time this year um, that he should go in after sort of oh, uh, debating his <laughs> um, debating in my head whether he had enough longevity. Um, but I mean, he's he's been such a good performer and really one of the more important figures during this period that I think he belongs in, um, in spite of the relatively short actual career. Um, and yeah, I think I think given that he was so close last year, that uh, it's a good shot from this year. I agree uh, that I expect him to go in. I mean, the biggest thing that changed to me is not so much that he broke the streak and then was promoted for a year as the guy who broke the streak. It was less... I mean, that was critical and played into everything else, but it's more the fact that that wasn't going to be his last act in the company before uh, going back and and doing fighting. And he's essentially going to be playing the Brock Lesnar role of this part-time attraction for another how long is that contract like three years so that's enough to where i think the argument for brock lesnar as a pure drawing card business guy is not the clear-cut case and is a lot more ambiguous than you you might think for someone promoted that way which gets you into all that quibbling about like UFC numbers counting and and what his impact is on the special events and what his impact is in a time without pay-per-view and blah 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 and all of that it was enough for me to at least devil's advocate against him before this year but now he has since his WWE comeback accrued so many important and good things and just been such a prominent figure in wrestling and will continue to be so that now uh, he'll be so glad to hear from me that I give him a big, nice hug to tell him that I also acquiesce to him being in the Hall of Fame. However, I still maintain, as I did last year, and I did even before the word yes was uttered by him in an exclamation on WWE TV, that the strongest candidate on the ballot is Brian Danielson. And I think he will be one of the people, and I'm glad. Do you think so? I hope so. I voted for him. I I didn't even think much about it. I was any thought that needed to be done about Brian for me was done a long time ago. For me, it's a simple case of Dave flat out says in the thing, if a candidate is so strong in one of the three, they should get in. Um, and I mean, if you had the greatest draw of all time, or arguably the greatest draw of all time, who was nothing as a wrestler in, in terms of performance, I think there's no question they'd get in. 
And with Brian, I think there's a very valid argument that he's one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Um, I'm currently working on my greatest wrestler ever project. Uh, uh. Um, <laughs> what's so funny? No, 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 I just, I just, I can imagine the amount of time that could be spent on this project. <laughs> it's, it's a project which will end and then like literally continues on the rest of my life as I watch more wrestling. But it's uh, yes, I immediately yeah. fast forward in my mind to an image of a, a seventy-five-year-old Alan going through <laughs> like old notes from two thousand thirty-four about like comparing this guy and that guy. Um, but uh, cheap plug, my, my blogs that I've been doing for that project are on the fightgameblog.com. Search greatest, greatest wrestler ever and read all my uh, various research I've been doing. But anyway, um, the uh, yeah, I'm very much I'm back and forth. I'm Brian is my number one. And um, uh, yeah, I just think that if he's that good as a wrestler, one of the three, the other stuff doesn't even come into it. And I, I vote him as a Hall of Famer. And then having... The fact that he um, had a pretty much saved a WrestleMania and was the the centerpiece of an extremely successful WrestleMania and being considered like one of just the really and good guys and in many ways influential guys in the business in the last ten fifteen years, I, for me it's he's just a mortal lock. There was there was no question in my mind, and I hope enough other people felt the same way that. He gets in, and hearing about this being seven people getting in makes me think that that was in fact the case. So yeah, I'm. Uh, it just seems like in this day and age, like how can uh, when Daniel Bryan is a guy who's really been a key figure in pro wrestling for the last several years, and it just seems fitting that he would be in the Hall of Fame. I don't know. It it would be very weird to me if he wasn't in the Hall of Fame. This is where Todd tells me he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I also think that, uh, well, I wish I wish I'd, I'd, I'd waited for a little bit, then I could have uh, argued against it. But uh, I guess I've sort of committed myself now. I also, <laughs> I also think that uh, he will be. That Alan is wrong, <laughs> just in general, and is prone to flights of fancy. <laughs> that's a that's a good expression. Um, yeah, I also think that he will be one of the seven, and I also think he deserves to be in. I agree very much with the way you laid out your your criteria for him specifically, Alan. I think just the best wrestler of uh, the generation and one of the greatest of all time, boom, you're pretty much in as far as I'm evaluating. The fact that he is then one of the like defining influential figures of this era of wrestling and like what it meant to be a wrestler at this time and how there was these indie promotions and how they succeeded and then how that ultimately came to uh, influence and in some bizarre ways like take over WWE at times, almost subsuming the company. Um, that That's just him. He's like, the story of this, this uh, 21st century to present is he's one of the crucial figures like behind John Cena. And uh, I think CM Punk is another one. I think the shame, at least in terms of interesting candidacies for both of them, is that they have stopped like right at the apex of when they were going to start to accrue a few bonus years as WWE headliners that should have really erased all doubt. Um, 
So with Punk, it is maybe going to be a little harder that he's not going to have all these uh, bonus years on top for the time being, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but Brian, I think uh, he he put the cherry on top with that last run, and uh, yeah, he's good to go. In a word, yes. Um, my question for you guys is uh, AJ and Nakamura. Do you think there's a chance that the New Japan buzz right now is so strong that it's affected voters enough to put either of these guys in this year? Because I think it's madness to consider either of these guys for the Hall of Fame yet. But um, I have a sneaky feeling one of, if not both, might actually be one of the seven. I wouldn't have thought that until I heard there were seven guys. But when I heard that, I was like, God damn, Nakamura got in, or maybe AJ got in, or maybe both. You're piling tricks upon tricks, Alan. First you did this <laughs> one at a time thing, and now you're asking for some sort of committal into this uh, in this list thing. I don't know how to answer this question. It it feels like a trick. Yeah, I know, but I suppose the the, the root of the question is: Do you think uh, the New Japan coverage in New Japan, what people think of New Japan right now? Is it such a level? Do you think that the voters could have been influenced enough to have these guys on the ballot? Because as someone who follows the promotion very closely and has followed both these guys' careers very closely, I don't see it. I'm curious what you guys think. Well, I think that uh, Nakamura belongs in. Um, so, Already? Really? Yeah. Um I mean, that's sort of the. I mean, that that brings up the sort of the perpetual question as to when exactly someone's ready or when someone isn't, um, in terms of timing. And well, I just don't think he's done enough yet. Yeah, I mean, to me, he's just been such a transcendent performer for a number of years now, and it's not like he's had a short career. I mean, he's had um, a relatively lengthy career. It's just that the the period where he's really been um, twelve years. And, yeah, that's not that's you know there there are guys in the Hall of Fame that uh, um, haven't had twelve year careers. Yeah, um, but the, it, the tw- it's twelve years for really the first six to seven were not exactly the they, they weren't even close to Hall of Fame level. Let's put it like that. And that's the argument that 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 his um, him really coming into his own was relatively later i think that's the 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 strongest argument against him um now in terms of whether i think that um it's going to lead to uh people getting in from from new japan over the last few years i mean i think sort of pref uh uh uh, in your question is the idea that people would perhaps be doing that unfairly viewing people's uh candidates from new japan too strongly because of the idea that well new japan's hot right now and i think it's sort of a a chicken and egg thing in the sense that i think yeah people from new japan over the last few years are likely to get more credit um because of that but i think that's indicative of a promotion that's been doing very well both in terms of producing a really high quality product and doing well business wise and i think that naturally should lead to more of a consideration of those people now Obviously, the argument is that it shouldn't lead to an unjust um, boosting of their credentials, where you know people are getting more of a of a uh, more credit than they deserve. And I think that's sort of an open question whether that happens or not. 
Um, obviously, my my feeling on Nakamura is uh, is different than yours. As far as whether I think it's going to happen, um, I, I actually uh, I actually kind of don't. Um, I'm thinking that it's uh, it's less likely that, that happens. And uh, Nakamura, neither Nakamura nor AJ are one of my seven, so um, there is that. I don't really have a take on them specifically, but I am reminded of like historical comparisons, which maybe aren't that useful just because of how the electorate for the hall has changed so drastically over the last, my God, is it like 17 years now? Um, so it's, it's become much more expansive. And my impression is like the, the voters are, have become even more like diversified in a few different ways. Um, so a, a comparison from 2004 is not necessarily identical to what can happen today, but in general, it's always struck me as a very conservative, uh, maybe overly conservative in terms of the patience of putting people in. I was kind of irritated that uh, Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero had to wait a little bit longer than I thought they should, but at the same time, there was a guy who people got like so excited by and were just like really in a groove with Kurt Angle that when he got on the ballot early at maybe just past the peak of though you it may not have been that clear at the time of what was a really incredible run in WWF E he he ended up on the ballot almost by like a weird accident of the rules of like 35 years I think was the only cutoff and then it was just like, Kurt Angle, yeah, he's awesome. Put him in the Hall of Fame. He's great. So um, that kind of thinking with uh, just like, oh, these New Japan guys are awesome. Every show, all these classic matches, sure. I would love to have them in my Hall of Fame. I vote for you because you rule. Um, I could see that happening. Um, but it would be an exception for what has seemed to me a pretty conservative uh, trend. I think it, I, sorry. I think it would um, it would really hammer home the point of what you're saying of of a shift in the uh, the electorate um, in recent years. I think it would it would if if they were to go in, I think it would really display a new characteristic for the voters. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it remains to be seen. They, in in they, what sense? In the, I, I just like Justin said, the, the voting bases or the voting pool has always been quite conservative, um, and I think those two getting in would, to me, tell me that, as, as Justin has said, there's a lot more voters now, and I would think that the uh, the mindset of the electorate would have moved to being um, a lot more lenient with voting people in especially voting current people in if those two guys were to get in. Yeah, I mean, there, are also... the counter, there are the counter-examples, like Kurt Angle. Yeah, but Kurt Angle... Oh, oh, yeah, okay, so, like, uh, Kurt... Well... Um, I kind of view Kurt differently in... A sense that I think a lot—it's it is well sort of or it is a talk, talking point that a lot of Kurt's um, a lot of the support Kurt got was from older people in the business who valued his 
legit background and legit credentials and weighed that quite heavily in voting for him. And I think that's kind of a separate a separate characteristic of the electorate, which was at play there. Hey, AJ was a Georgia wrestling high school champion. Come on now. <laughs> this is true. And Shinsuke is a, he's a bit of a badass himself. Um, so it's going back to you, Alan. We're, we're naming, we were naming our seven that we think are going to get in. And Okay, uh, so we've said Perro, we've said Brock, we've said Danielson. I think uh, Carlos Colon ekes over the 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 threshold finally this year. I just think it was uh, just a matter of needing that one last push, and I, I think um, I think this year he goes in. So uh, yeah, that's four for me. I'm gonna I'm gonna go regroup and think of the rest of mine, and uh, uh, yeah, you can come back to me then. I didn't prepare a list. I was, but yeah, I to continue to compete. I was gonna pull one of those like borderline olden timer candidates who would finally sneak over, like I don't know, an Ivan Koloff or one of those, where it's like, congratulations, it broke your way. So apparently, I'm saying him. There, that's one. I would, yes. I would like that as a voter for Ivan Koloff. I would think that would be good. Yeah, I think we're thinking along similar lines. I, I just, I, I, the, the seven I had. Um, Here's my prediction. Um, uh, Brock Lesnar is mentioned. Um, uh, Ivan Koloff, as mentioned. Uh, Carlos Colon, as mentioned. Brian Danielson, as mentioned. And then my other three um, were Cien Caras, who's been close uh, and uh, I think is likely to get in at some point and is, is in that 50% group where he needs to get a certain amount of, uh, of, uh, of the vote in order to stay on, which I think helps his case. Uh, Carlo Fagarde, who's also been very close, and uh, is in uh, also in that that Mexican camp of uh, some uh, uh, an area that has a lot of strong candidates that I think uh, I think people recognize probably need to go in in higher numbers. And then my seventh is a uh, a little bit of a wild card leading uh, that I think Alan alluded to earlier. It might have been Justin um, that they might bring in one. Um, or two or more that uh, that were not voted on, and given that that Dave mentioned him as appearing on the ballot next year, but then he didn't appear on the ballot, uh, Eddie Quinn Ooh. would seem to be someone that Dave was thinking about might belong in last year, and probably shouldn't be put to a vote given that his you know his years of promoting uh, were you know f- 50 years ago um, plus. Hey, I I have very strong <laughs> feelings on Mr. Quinn. So. Um. Yeah, so he seems like a, a guy that might be uh, might be brought in without voting. Strong detective work. Scoop Troop, get out your pencils. <laughs> Todd may have just played an ace here. How about that? Little Justin Shapiro contributing to the dialogue in an unexpected way. You're making a lot of sense to me. That's even better than what I was going to say, was that you never know which one of the non-wrestling guys maybe will just arbitrarily sneak in. I know one guy... Uh, one certain candidate whose name has come up uh, in previous years on a different website. You two have gotten me to write uh, an entire poem limerick about Gene Okerlund. And then on the opposite end, if I could paraphrase Todd Martin with a direct quote of me making up the words in the direct quote of things that he didn't exactly say, and this is an exact quote of his that I'm changing the words of, Bill Apter, a massive piece of shit with no business on the ballot. 
do you care to respond to that? <laughs> well, I was more throwing it to you guys to see what you guys thought. But yeah, I mean, I was I was reading uh, Bill Apter's book um, over the last couple of weeks, and it struck me reading this book that I just I mean he uh, he comes across in the book as just a sort of sad character that's sort of just looking for anyone to give him approval and is just sort of happy that anyone will sort of pat him on his head and let him hold up their award on, you know, hold up a PWI award on their television show. And I, I sort of put him in my head in this sort of fabulous moolah camp of people that have a distinct niche in the business and, uh, you know, are, are, are very, are, are number one famous Number two, uh, distinct. You know, they've got a, a cachet that, um, and, a, and a spot that a lot of people don't have. But how important is that spot? And, you know, reading his book got me thinking more about him. Like, how important is that slot he had there? You know, if he wasn't playing that role, Stanley Weston still would have been producing his magazines. You know, a lot of the same people would have been there. I don't know that the business is all that different um, for him. And, it just it, it, it struck me that he's a pretty weak candidate relative to a lot of people on the ballot. But I was curious your guys' thoughts. Uh, I'm not really an after kid. It was uh, the the after mags were over here, but I never got them. Um, I got WF magazine when I was a kid, and then I got Paris Slam as a teenager. So um, I was never really um, exposed to after I. I kind of understand his importance and role um, from my position, how where I see it. I don't feel it's a Hall of Fame role or Hall of Fame importance, um, but I don't feel super well positioned to pass judgment on him one way or the other. Of course, then I would be remiss not to bring up uh, our annual conversation with the great Steve Borden, who... Are you just going to address that? I was curious your opinion. You just ignored the question. How dare you? I uh, I buried him through not even deigning <laughs> to dignify Bill after with her. Clearly, I, my Mr. imaginary ballot did not him, have him on it. It's a strong no on after. <laughs> I mean, not strong feelings, but a decisive no. I have no quibble with, with anything you said. And Alan's apathy isn't going to help him either, so... <laughs> Yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, Justin, to answer uh, your question before it's asked, Sting did nothing this year to uh, add to his Hall of Fame credentials for me. If anything, I think his WF run being kind of just kind of bleh knocks his status down a peg or two for me. Um, I I, uh, like Sting. Seems like a real cool guy in the Cool Guy Hall of Fame this year. Did well for him, particularly after watching the uh, uh, table for three with him, Vader, and um, um, and DDP. And other than that, um, no, I uh, very much a strong no still on Sting. But with again, he's another one that when I saw seven people, I was like, "Geez, I wonder if Sting got in." Oh, and one one by the way, one closing thought. Dave sure. frequently makes the point that. Uh, Everyone who's on the ballot is a solid candidate, or they wouldn't be on the ballot. <laughs> and I'd like to say that uh, Big Show, if nothing else, uh, disproves that theory. By the way, since you brought up Table for Three, Alan, did you guys see the most recent Table for Three? So that's the last one I saw, the Vader one. 
Did you guys see all of the, 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 the most recent one? Justin, did you see this? I think I, I think I did, but I forget. Did it have gold dust in it? Is it <laughs> No. Is it the Molly Holly? No, the the, the, the that one was actually really good. Oh the it's most... it's like it's like Miz and um yes. Who is it again? The Axe Man. Yes. It is it is Miz, R Truth, and Michael McGillicuddy. Like I was nice. trying to figure out what the angle was. Like, I think it's some sort of troll job, but I can't figure out what. <laughs> like, are they trying to figure out what the, like, baseline is for these table for threes? Like, because, like, most of them have been, like, relatively interesting pairings. And then they're, like, Miz, R-Truth, and Curtis Axel. It was just so bizarre. You know who it is? It's the uh, people who got The Rock back in shape for his <laughs> comeback match with John Cena, right? I mean that's obviously not what it is about, but it was, it was the him working with Miz and Truth at Survivor Series while training with the Axe Man, I think. I believe that's all true. What I just said, it's irrelevant, but it's true. So then maybe the angle was trolling on, um, on what's his face who left the company. Oh, Ryan the other Myers? Rock helper. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's it. They're like, because he was angry at them for not giving him credit. So may, actually, you know what? I really think this is it now. I think they're like, fuck that guy for, you know, uh-huh. getting mad at us for not giving him credit for The Rock. We're going to have a table for three that's built around the people that were, you know, preparing The Rock for that match. And he's not going to be invited. His symbolic empty chair, like that Jewish ghost man at Passover dinner. Uh, leave a chair open for Kurt Hawkins. Guys, I hate to do, I hate to do this, but I, I think I'm going to have to slip away and... Uh... Oh, oh yeah, look. it's gone late. I'm shutting it down, pal. Don't worry. I thank you for your service. You okay. I'll, 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 I'll hang. I'll hang. Thanks for hanging, bud. Yeah, I just want I mean, on Sting, uh, I, I echo your sentiments. I thought he worked his scorpion tail balls off in that Seth Rollins match. It was absurd. Uh, I will say, though, there has been news of Lita, Amy Dumas, joining the company as an agent uh, it's sort of a true story. It was actually me in a red wig, and I've been impersonating Lita, and I was the agent for Sting's two matches in the company, and I did suggest uh, he lose and shake Triple H's hand, and then I did suggest he take as many corner power bombs as possible. And so uh, those were my ideas to tank Sting's Hall of Fame candidacy once and for all. And I'm sorry, but I do love it when a plan uh, comes together. So I am posing as Lita, in the company, and so some of my other machinations may be revealed over time. I can't see. I can't wait to see where this uh, tale takes us next. Yep. So find out in part three of our uh, jumps discussion. That's right. <laughs> and the jumps I'll be doing will oh, be when like Justin jumped to the the female demographic. <laughs> well, to do a moonsault, all you do is stand and then fall backwards and then hope your legs get over your head at some point. So that's what I've been doing. As well as jumping and then putting my legs in someone and then folding backwards and flipping them. These are my jumps. I'm Lita. Oh, a hurricane. I was trying to figure out what the hell you were talking about there. I got, I got it. Yep, so pretty shocking news to end on, but no time to cover it. Um, <laughs> thanks so much, guys. I One of these days... I'm sure, I'm sure Todd this. and Wade will have an in-depth breakdown of it on, on Wednesday. <laughs> Yeah, please tell Wade Keller this. He can write a whole feature article on the newsletter, and Alan, you can get it in Fighting Spirit Mag for 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 that whole island of people. Would love for everyone to know that I have been Lita in a wig 
agenting Sting's matches and sabotaging him to keep him out of the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. So, down the line, God willing, um, we will finish this notion of wrestle jumps and uh, a real privilege for me, uh, like fantasy baseball camp, to host this show with two heavy hitters like yourselves. And just let me thank you again for for being here. You're very welcome, Justin. Thank you everyone for listening. And happy Thanksgiving. I, I got I to talk into my pumpkin pie now. All right. Well, let's all head out to the yard for some two-hand touch football. <laughs> Ready, guys? I call all-time QB. was once a rising star. Once ranked 15th in the world, I hear. Uh, 11th, actually. Who never rose to the top. That's Peter Cole, once ranked 17th in the world. 11th! Now, in his final tournament. Since this may well be my last Wimbledon press conference, I'd like to announce my retirement from... It's Jake! Tennis. That's my retirement from tennis. He's about to meet someone. Who knows what it takes to win? Oops, sorry, wrong court. Lives in property, right? Yeah. Ten bucks says you can't hit two in a row. You're exceeding my expectations. Mine too. Hit this one, and I'll sleep with you. Ow! Too bad. You could have used the workout. My daughter's on a roll right now, but I don't want her to have any distractions. Right. Of course. Sorry, just to clarify, do you see me as a distraction? This fall, the guy everyone counted out. Go out there and decide who you are. Who might not be? Might be a winner. Incredible. This is the first seeded player he's defeated in two years. Is now the guy everyone's talking about. What did I always say about you? You're not still my agent, I Here you are existing again, so I'm back selling again. You know, I genuinely despise you. From the creators of Notting Hill and Bridget Jones. I know that Lizzie likes to have her fun. This time it's different. She's falling for you. <laughs> Kirsten Dunst. Paul Bettany. What do you think makes her so extraordinary? She makes a decision, she goes for it. When you fear nothing. Not to add to the pressure, but you know the entire United Kingdom is cheering you on. Anything is possible. You're doing so great. You just have to... Keep winning. So keep winning. It's when your heart's really in it that you play your best. And for one moment, the world is yours for the taking. Wimbledon. There'll never be another tournament. Another trophy. Another girl. That's right, Leslie. Lizzie! Ow, ow, Lizzie!